right. A couple things. Um, if you don't get our church email, you may not be up to date on everything. So um, we had uh, sent an email out that we had been talking with Kirsten Phillips for a bit of time about um, coming on staff, and we got inf- feedback from all of you guys, and the elders voted to bring Kirsten on staff. She's coordinating what we call discipleship ministries. Um, primarily, yeah, it's good to have her. She officially starts Monday, but I think she's been working a little bit already. Um, but primarily in the area of uh, taking over the teaching part of the women's, women's ministry, but also um, really working on our community groups to begin developing our community group system, um, which is where, outside of this place, um, the, the men's ministry, the men's groups are all part of that, just developing our hearts for him. So um, we'll be praying over Kirsten next Sunday, but um, be praying for her as she um, adjusts her schedule and steps into a new role there. Um, you can turn to Micah chapter 7. We are on the very end of this today. Um, we'll finish up tonight. Last week, we, um, we were talking about acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. And uh, the acting justly part is um, basically acting on behalf often of those um, who don't have a voice for themselves. And there's all sorts of ways to do that in our world. Um, interesting, God, through his spirit, even as we just do acts on behalf of others, um, God brings opportunities to bring in the gospel too. So like one half was just serving across the street and doing projects over there, opened up a door, further door for the good news clubs, and the gospel gets shared with kids across the street. So um, those acts of justice we do um, make a huge difference. And um, I get um, numbers of people each week that have opportunities because you are all involved in so many things. Um, and ways to connect us with that. So after the service, I'd encourage you to go back to the table. Elizabeth is going to be back there, and um, there's a special work that's on her heart that fits in that category of acting on behalf of others. And so she has a fundraising set, which I I think you got flyers back there, right? Go there and read what she says about why she's doing it, because it shows the connection between acting on behalf of others and God's heart and love for people and what he'll do with that. But um, her goal is to raise some money to uh, basically fill a classroom full of Iraqi school children who presently aren't getting any education, which puts them at um, risk um, for a lot of things in particular, just being um, ISIS and those kinds of things pulling them in. So um, she's going to be back at the table. I would encourage you to go get one of those things, read what she's doing, consider your participation in it. It is putting into action in a very specific way exactly what we talked about last week. And, and you can do it in a very, very simply and we could take care of this whole project in a week for her. Um, so see Elizabeth um, after the service, and here's a chance to step um, right into that. Today we're finishing up the book of Micah, and I hope you've found that the minor prophets are actually rich with all sorts of good things in there, because um, they are, and you just have to dig around a bit for it. Um, so, um, and I hope that you've been encouraged and instructed um, both in the gospel and in grace and even in the challenges that we have here. So we're here in Micah chapter 7. The book began, as I mentioned last week, with, it says, the word of the Lord comes to Micah. It's the word of the Lord. God, God speaks truth, and he says he's coming down. He says, everybody's supposed to listen, because what I'm about to say is something for everybody. And he says, the word of the Lord, and it says it came to Micah. Remember what's name Micah mean? Right? Who is like God? That's, that's basically the, na- Micah, the, name, the meaning of Micah's name. And so right in the very beginning of the, the book, his own name identifies the very theme of the book, which is going to be, this is what God is like. 
and we should be responding to him and obeying him and walking with him because of all that we see in the ways that God is in his character. Um, it says in verse 3 that the Lord was coming out of his place, this is chapter 1, and all the mountains are going to melt before him. And so the book um, very much starts, wants to start with this, this grand view of God that's supposed to cause us to shake a little bit and to pay attention, going, whatever he's going to say, i got to hear what he has to say and ready to obey. The book ends with the same thing here in chapter 7. God is... Um, Book ends this with the holiness of God and responding to him. And what is he really like? Is there anybody like our God? And then it's going to end with exactly the same thing. And in between, we get this, this book that really ultimately ends up describing the very character and nature of God. It's actually a mini psalter in a way for us as we sing. And the answer to who is like God is the answer is what? The answer is no. Nobody's like our God. Only God is like him. Um, as I said, the, the prophecy began with the presentation of God, one who is like no other. And even in this week, as we've walked through it, there have been hundreds of things that have come into our life that have tried to rival um, God's place in that. Something saying, I'm as great as God. You should give attention to me first. But those things are not to take um, his place. Um, is there anyone or anything or any desire, any goal, any occupation, any relationship, any vision or any dream that is like God, and the answer is no, there's not. That's why we start there. And when we start in that place understand that, the other things all start coming and falling into place. And God begins to align those priorities in our life. As I said, the prophecy is going to end with exactly the same statement um, in verse 19 when he's going to say, who is a God like you? And we're going to move towards that um, tonight. The question might be raised, in what ways is God unsurpassed? We say, who is a God like you? In what ways? In what ways is God unsurpassed? In chapter 7, um, he does not describe all of them, but he's going to describe for us four of them. And so I just want to walk through those. The first, we'll go through them fairly quickly. There's a lot of verses here. I'll read them. But um, he basically ends the book by saying, God is unsurpassed, and there's four ways. And the fourth one is one he's going to highlight as we get to the end of the book. So it starts out here in chapter 7. Verses 1 through 7, he is unsurpassed in his judgments. Interesting one to start with. God is unsurpassed in his judgments. It says here, Woe is me! I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, and when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Verse 2, The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desires of his soul, and they weave it all together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is just a thorny hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come, and now confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Interesting start. It sounds like the rest of the book, doesn't it? It starts out, um, God reminds that there's judgment has come upon the land. And God, being holy and righteous, is the only one who can judge because he does so rightly 
and he does so fairly, and he does so out of his holiness, so he can speak the judgments that he wants. God rules. He's the only holy and righteous just, and his ways are perfect even in judgments. When we say, who is a God like him? One of the hard ones is in his judgments. Who is like him in his judgments? And the answer to that is nobody. Um, so there's three ways here, actually, that he mentions that God has brought judgment upon the land. And actually, all three of them um, identify that God has, in a sense, stepped back from his work among the people. Whenever God steps back, things begin to fall apart. And so um, it falls apart. His judgments um, show up here in three, three different ways. The first one, verse, the first three verses, he basically tells that godliness, which is supposed to be at the center of the nation of Israel, has left the land. So... Um, where when you look in Revelation, you'll, it talks about the fact that there's, there's godliness that leaves, and it's left behind, just there's, there's no influence anymore, it's, it's departed. And when that happens, things just crumble so quickly. And he, he does so by describing here, um, like going to a, a, a place for grapes, and you go to see all the grapes, and you're going to grab handfuls of them, and you go to grab them, and there's nothing there. Um, the things that are supposed to represent... Um, uh, the, the produce of God and the goodness of God in the land and his presence, which is the grapes and the wine, they go to feast on them and they find nothing. He says that here in verse 1. And then he says this, the, the godly has perished from the land. Or I go to grab some figs, he says, that my soul would desire. And he reaches up and he finds nothing there. So it's like if you, um, we get the little, um, it'll start up actually pretty soon here. We'll start getting those little emails from Apple Annie's saying which apples or peaches are in, in season. Um, and uh, my wife loves us to drive to Apple Annie's, and I always just say, how much money does it cost to drive to Apple Annie's? And then we rush, and there's these trees full of apples, and it takes us like literally five minutes to fill up a couple five-gallon buckets of apples, and we're done, and we drive all the way back from Wilcox, and it's very fun and very great. Um, <laughs> and I resist it every year. But if you, if you don't follow the emails and you go too late, you know what you find at Apple Annie's? A bunch of rotting apples is what you find. You end up, you search tree after tree after tree, and there's nothing in there. There's like one up in a corner somewhere, and you get it, and everything on the ground is just eaten up. And even when you find something in the tree, it's, it's gone. It's rotting away. And Micah says that's what it's like in the land when he's speaking to them, that um, when God withdraws his work, godliness leaves the land, and it's a form of judgment because when the godliness is not there, things begin to crumble and fall apart. And so their rejection of God brings consequences as God steps back and lets those consequences run their course. And the course is, it says here, the godly has perished from the earth. There's nobody upright among mankind. Um, we looked at um, Sodom and Gomorrah a while back when we said the reason there was um, the punishment came on it was not so much for sin. It was because there was no godliness there anymore. The, the influence had departed. And so um, it says here, the first judgment here, it shows up. He's great in his judgments, and that God, he judges by showing that godliness has left um, the land. Any society that departs from the Lord and his ways will be impacted in every aspect of society. A natural judgment occurs as the land is left to its own devices. Um, by the way, why does God do that? <laughs> the scriptures tell us he does it because he wants to turn people's hearts back to himself. And when godliness departs and is gone um, and people are looking for it and can't find it, 
It caused them to turn their hearts. We see that in Judges over and over again, that people's hearts turn back to him. So he's unsurpassed in judgment, and there's three ways that he's judged the land. The first one is godliness has left the land. The second one here is there's a breakdown in leadership. That's verse 4. We've already talked about that in chapter 3, but it says the most upright of them um, is like a thorn hedge. Um, it says their hands are on what is evil. The prince and the judge are asking for a bribe, and they weave their conspiring together. That's what we saw in chapter 3. So the second way his judgment comes on the land is there's just this lack of godly leadership. It has um, left, the, left them behind. Um, and where the leadership goes, so go the people. And so there's trouble here in the land. And then the third way is that judgment has come upon this land in this passage here is a breakdown in the relationships, particularly the family it says here, uh, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. It says, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies with you. So the, the husband or wife, you don't say anything in front of them because they're going to betray you if you say something. Um, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against mother. Um, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. And so the third way the judgment shows up here is there's this breakdown in the family system. It just completely unravels. And we see pieces of that today. Um, and so this first way is how is God unsurpassed? He is unsurpassed in judgment. And he shows up here at least three ways that God has judged the land. Um, that godliness has left it, that there's a breakdown in leadership, and that there's a breakdown in family and relationships. This is a really hard one to actually praise God and say, who is a God like you? You are a God who is full of judgments that are right and true. That's, it's hard to thank him for that. It's hard to praise him for that. But he actually, that's one of the very characteristics of God, that he's righteous in all of his judgments. And what we see actually is that his judgments here, we already saw in the days of Hezekiah, turn the people's hearts back to himself again. And so they have an effect upon the people. We are to praise God who judges, and his judgment is right, and his judgment is reflection of his holiness. So, God is unsurpassed in judgment. Number two, God is unsurpassed in rescuing. This is verses uh, 8 through 13 and a couple other verses. He says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise up. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended, and in that day they will come to you, speaking of Israel for worship, from Assyria, the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And then verse 15, it says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They will come trembling out from their strongholds, and they will turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. God is unsurpassed in his rescuing or his deliverance. Um, in these verses, it tells us a number of things about God delivering. It says, I will be raised up. Those who are cast down, he raises up. Those who are trodden down by the, the weights of life, he says he raises them up. 
He says that those who are in darkness, God will be a light to them. Verse 8. He says, he'll plead my case. I love it. Uh, Micah says, I am a sinner, and, and all the things you said, I'm, those are, I'm, I align myself with those. I've done that as well. And I'm just going to sit underneath that because the God who judges me is also the God who's going to come along and plead my case. Isn't that great? The one who actually judges is the one who pleads our case on our behalf. So God is great in his rescuing and his deliverance. And when the judge is on your side, you're, you're in good shape. Um, it says our enemies will give praise to God. He says the boundaries of their life are going to be enlarged. He says marvelous things will multiply over and over and over again. And then at the end here, he says the nations themselves, which is all over the Old Testament, are going to turn and give praise and fear to God. Um, God is a God who's unsurpassed in rescuing and in deliverance of his people. Um, scriptures say that we have been delivered from darkness into his marvelous light. We've been um, taken up out of the miry pit and set upon a solid place. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us that God steps in and delivers us. Um, he delivered us when we were in sin, as sinners, and then as believers, he rescues us over and over again as he continues to bring about his work of reconciliation in our life. God is still in the business of rescuing. And here in this nation, God showed it, but he shows it in every testimony that's in this room that God is in the business of rescuing and delivering his people, and he's unsurpassed in that. Um, I, I lifeguarded for a long, long time, and um, actually, when I was in Michigan just a couple weeks ago, they, um, where I stayed at, they've, several years ago, they quit having lifeguards on the beach. They just had them at the pool. Some, some insurance issue. Um, it's too, too much money, so it's basically swim at your own risk, and um, so the, there's one day, and it was dangerous. I mean, it was huge waves, and so everybody's out there swimming because it's fun, um, but it's scary. You just get swept away. You know, people don't realize Lake Michigan is just, there's so many bad things that happen in that lake. It's the number of wrecks in Lake Michigan. I can't remember the number, but it's like, mar- it like matches something like the Atlantic Ocean or something. It's just huge numbers of wrecks in Lake Michigan. They're all over the place. But um, there were times when I went out, when I was lifeguarding, we'd go out to get people. Um, and the fact is, I was never sure I was always going to get out there to get people. I mean, you, you go out there confident, you swim, and you're the lifeguard. But you're always thinking, what if they go down? What if I can't find them? What if, what if I get too tired out there? What if I get grabbed up in the same thing? And those kind of thoughts go. God is the only one who can always rescue, always deliver, because he's the one who's paid for our sin. Um, and we can absolutely trust him, and no matter what's going on in our life, God is unsurpassed in his rescue. Number three, he's unsurpassed in caring for his people. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, and let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Isn't that a great picture? People who dwell in a beautiful forest that's in the middle of a garden land. Isn't that a great picture? Um, Forests are cool. There's moss, like in Seattle, you know, out there. Um, And it's in the midst of this garden. And God says, I'm the one who shepherds my people into that kind of place. This is the, um, I I believe it's the third instance in this book where God has been compared to a shepherd. um, Because it's one of those motifs, those metaphors for Jesus himself, who is our good shepherd and our great shepherd. And as a shepherd, shepherds um, live with their sheep. They know what's going on and they're caring for them. The scriptures talk about it all over the place. As God administers care and love upon his sheep. He shepherds his people. He leads them to pleasant pastures. 
Um, and as I said, it's one of the primary metaphors for Jesus, who's our great shepherd and the good shepherd. Um, he's unsurpassed in his care for us. And that kind of quote goes from being under judgment, and we praise him for that, and then we praise him that he's unsurpassed in his, um, his delivering us. And then he delivers us who didn't deserve it at all, and then he walks every step of the way taking care of us and guiding us. Janice, if you just started school, you get all the new parents that bring your kids the first time, and they're all kind of trying not to let go, right? I, mean, I remember doing that with my kids. They're, you're not sure if they're hanging on to you, if you're hanging on to them, but you're not wanting to let go. Um, and you just you want to make sure they're okay. And um, God just abounds over that in terms of our lives as he steps in and just guards us and guides us and takes care of our needs. He knows every single one of them, how to meet them, when to meet them, and what we need. And God is unsurpassed as the one who cares for us as um, our shepherd. He cares for all our needs. Who does? The only one that does is God. I'm like that. And then lastly, he's unsurpassed in his forgiveness. Um, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Let me read that again. This is how this book of a, a minor prophet casting judgment upon a nation, this is how he ends his book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins. He, he, he's talking about God. Now he's turning right to him because he's so caught up in him. He points, looks right at God and says, You will cast our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Interesting. What does he say here? He says he pardons iniquity. Iniquity is, um, I'm just going to sin. I'm just going to do it. And I'm just going to do it right in the face of God. And I'm just going to go my way. And in the face of that, he says, you pardon iniquity. He passes it over. He says he passes over our transgressions. Um, he has a right, as we said the other week, to judge them. He has a right to hold us accountable for them. He has a right to do whatever he wants with those things. He says he, he passes over them. Um, I, uh, I wrecked our cars quite a few times. Um, I've shared, I think I've shared most of the stories, all of them before I got my license, so I was younger. A um, few occasions. One, um, it wasn't my, our car. It was a friend's car. And I, th- I might have shared this story, but a friend of ours had one of these old Volkswagen 411s, like these old Volkswagen wagons, and um, his parents were gone, and so my friend was driving it, and I was in the back seat with another guy, another guy in the front seat, and we were driving up and down their private road, and he went up on an embankment and turned the wheels, and we tipped over with the car, and so I remember we opened the window, and I remember running home. I just ran home. So um, his parents passed over his transgression, fortunately. And my dad, when he found out about it, interestingly enough, passed over my transgression, which could have been bad. I smashed our Volkswagen up into the woods. I drove it into the woods. I was in reverse, and I forgot to stop and just went in the woods. And then I cut on the bumper around this tree. And rather than getting looking to figure out what was going on, I just kind of gunned it forward and backwards and forward and backwards. So my brother came out there yelling at me to stop, and it's like I look in the 
things that's just mangled in the back. And then I drove my dad's, uh, his Mercedes-Benz through the, the back wall of the garage. Um, his hardtop for the car was in front of the car, sitting up against the wall. They both went into the backyard. Um, interesting, my dad, um, it was like it didn't even happen. Um, you can ask my son, I'm not like that all the time. Um, he just passed over my transgression. It, was, it wasn't until later I was reading a book about my grandfather, my dad's dad, and I discovered my dad had done some really bad things um, in regards to cars. And um, my grandfather had passed over his transgression over and over again. And so it gets passed along to me. And God, it says here, Mike, Mike in the end of this book, he says, who's like God? He passes over our transgressions. And he does it again and again and again because of what Christ has done for us. It says that he doesn't just show steadfast love. It says he delights in showing steadfast love. It's like he's looking for a chance to show it again. If he can find one more opportunity, he's going to find it and show it over and over and over again. It says he has compassion on us. The same thing we hear from Jesus when he pours out his heart on his people. It says he actually it treads our iniquities underfoot. The idea here is that he's not treading on us but he's treading out those things that would condemn us, um, kind of stomping them out and putting them out of the way so that they would not rise up against us again. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Scriptures in Isaiah says, Surely himself, he himself bore our sins. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, so that God then can step in and be unsurpassed in his forgiveness. Um, it's interesting, the scriptures in Isaiah says it's actually pleased the Lord to crush him. Why is that? How could, how could the Father be pleased to pull this judgment of our sin on Jesus? It's because he delights in showing us loving kindness. He delights in passing over our transgressions um, on our behalf. Interesting, the, the entire prophecy of this book, I think, has been moving to these three verses. Um, the whole book, from the very start, when Micah says, this is a holy God coming, who is like him? And he's going to move all the way to this verse. He is unsurpassed in his forgiveness. Micah shared all sorts of things, but when he gets to this issue that God forgives, I think he kind of just lets it loose. I mean, I, I feel like that when I read this, that he just gets excited about it. And finally, at the culmination of everything, he says, you've heard all this, you better respond to it. God is acting, but don't forget, God is an awesome God who forgives us. He can't contain himself, and so he shouts out, who is a God like you? Interesting, he would have been shouting out his name, because <laughs> that's what the name means, um, who is a God like you? And it would have reminded him that he was the one himself also that had received it. He cries out his name, the very heart and meaning of his life, his very identity of who he is as a prophet shows up in a declaration of all that God is. He forgives. And who forgives like God? The answer is no one. None of us even come close to that. Um, I don't know if you've ever woken up at night and you're just angry or bitter at somebody. You wake up and it's just there. And it's been brooding on you. And you're like, gosh, where did that come from? God, bring forgiveness in my heart for that. We're not like God. Um, it's hard for us. And yet God says he delights in doing that on our behalf. Interesting, on the Day of Atonement, um, when the people celebrate the Day of Atonement, they read two things together. They read the book of Jonah, and they read the last three verses of Micah. The book of Jonah, which is God who just pours out forgiveness on people who didn't deserve it, so much so that Jonah goes, I knew you were like this. I knew you would do that because that's what you're like. 
They read that book, and then they read these three verses from Micah, which describe the wonders of God and his forgiveness. And I think that in all the ways that God is unsurpassed, God wants us to know more than anything else, this is the way I am unsurpassed by, nobody surpasses me in this, in my forgiveness. Jonah says, I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Janice, you guys can work your way back up here. I'm gonna, let's read that together. Um, I think we got the words up here. The next slide there, John. Next one, I think. Yep. Let's read that aloud together, okay? Our great God, you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us. Let's do it again. Our great God, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us. Um, we should just drive that into our hearts, um, not to open the door for sin, but to overwhelm us with the wonder that God is unsurpassed in giving forgiveness to his people. In Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus takes the bread and the cup that I have behind us here, says he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Um, Jesus, who's about to be betrayed by all of them, he, he hands them the bread and the cup. And he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I love the idea that he basically says, drink up my mercy. Drink up my forgiveness. Take it to its fullest. Enjoy it. This is for you, and I'm going to do it on your behalf. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. If there's one thing we can remember from the prophecy of Micah is that God abounds in forgiveness, um, that he is unsurpassed in the giving of forgiveness on behalf of the people that he loves. Um, let me pray for the bread and the cup, and then we will worship. The, uh, the table is open to us tonight as we um, come around the table together. Um, Lord, you are unsurpassed as a God who judges. You do it in righteousness and holiness. Give us hearts that are receptive to that. You're unsurpassed in your deliverance of us um, as you rescued us from sin. But you rescue us from so many little things in every given day, even from our own hearts. Um, you're unsurpassed in your love and your shepherding and your care for us. And I thank you that you walk with us. Um, you never depart from our side. And you act on our behalf in all things. And above all, as we gather around the bread and the cup, we remember that you are unsurpassed in your forgiveness. So generate in us hearts um, that are thankful, that we may praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.